you would please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And let's stand together. This evening we hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 23, and I'll read through chapter 11, verse 1. This is the word of the living God. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Thus far the word of God. Let's pray. We ask now, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would add his blessing to the reading and especially the preaching of your own word. We are mindful of the frailties of the speaker. We are mindful of the frailties of those who listen. But we are even more mindful of the power of the Holy Spirit, who even now is at work in and through us for the glory of the Father, the Son, and himself, the Holy Spirit. And so we pray with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The crowd was bubbling with laughter. Everyone was laughing. Everyone, that is, except a person standing there named Mark. Mark was a new convert to the faith, a seeker of sorts. What no one in the room knew was that Mark was also a recovering alcoholic and was still in rehab. He'd been raised in the church, but fell away. <clears throat> he found the AA 12-step program somewhat helpful, but spiritually shallow and confused. And so here he was back at church after a long time away, only to find that the very place he thought he might find refuge and encouragement in his endeavor to stop drinking would be another source of temptation. He left the room distraught, sullen, and stumbling. What was worse is that when two men from church found out why it was that he left, they accused him of legalism and insisted that, they, that he should be okay with their drinking. After all, it was their Christian liberty. How often have we used our liberty, even if unintentionally, like a rope to strangle the weak? At times, even losing our sensitivity to the fact that there are some uh, who are weak and tend to struggle with this very subject, which I would imagine is actually a pretty sensitive subject for most people in this room, for one reason or another. The story that I just read is uh, one's kind of prepackaged of sorts, but I'll mention one that's rather more personal to me. Uh, my dad, as you know, passed away right after we moved here, uh, early 2021. He died 
And I can say, I, I never had a beer with my dad. And the reason why is, well, uh, he was gone for most of my life, but he became a Christian the same year I did. And the year that he became a Christian, he stopped drinking altogether. And if you asked him what happened to his marriage and to our family, he would say a big part of it was he became an alcoholic. And so after becoming a Christian, he never touched a drop again. And for that, I had great respect for my dad and his principles. Scripture teaches us how to navigate through these difficult questions. And I grant that they are, are difficult and they're sensitive. And I hope to be sensitive not only with the text, uh, but even with you and your conscience. You have an outline printed on the back of your handout, and we'll attempt to walk through the text using that as our aid. And the first thought we're going to give attention to is that of glorifying God in our discernment. In many ways, this text uh, breaks down uh, pretty simply and neatly into three sections, the first of which are the general principles that Paul is attempting to give us, which he does here at the beginning of the section in verses 23 through 24. This is the principle, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul is challenging the church to discern. And in many ways, that's the challenge of the Christian life. It's to discern. And sometimes the challenge is to discern what's right from wrong. But I would actually suggest, and I think many of you would agree, that the real challenge in the Christian life is not simply discerning right from wrong, but good from best. There are some things that are okay to do, but they're not necessarily helpful. They are not the best. There are some things that are perfectly lawful for us to do, and yet at the end of the day, they do not edify. So part of the challenge of the Christian life is to discern right from wrong. The challenge for many of us as we try to mature through the faith is discerning what is good from those things that are actually the best. And what is it that Paul wants us to pursue, beloved? He wants us to pursue not simply the good things, but the best things. He wants us to pursue the best things, to recognize it as a category. Yes, uh, some things may be lawful in and of themselves, okay, or not sinful. And yet, at the same time, they may, might not be the best things for us to do. Gerhardus Voss, in a wonderful little sermon, has a great way of taking up this language by way of Hebrews 12, and says that some things for us, in distinguishing uh, weights from sins, uh, some things for us are very clear. They are sins. You ought not to do them. But other things are simply more like weights. They might not be sinful, and yet they hinder us from running the race of faith well. That's the sort of category that we are looking at here. That Paul wants us to do those things which are helpful and actually build up. In many ways, uh, he's saying you have certain freedom, but be willing to sacrifice those freedoms especially on occasion when you have the opportunity to build up another person and to prove to be spiritually helpful to their advantage. Strive to do in every situation only those things which are helpful, only those things which are edifying. To adopt such a mindset is not to become legalistic. That is not what Paul is saying. He's not shrinking the Christian's liberty. In fact, in many ways, he's actually expanding it. Actually expanding it to say, you are so free to do those things that you don't have to do those things. 
That's just how free you actually are. And when you think about it, what Paul prescribes is not only right, it's pretty much hard to argue against, after all it is the word of God, uh, but practically speaking, we know it to be true. Imagine what the world would be like if people always and only ever did what is helpful and builds up other people. Imagine what a family would be like if the words alone, always and ever spoken, were only words which are helpful and edifying. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that family? And here in Corinth, Paul is making the same point. What would the church be like if all that people ever and only did were those things that actually built up and were edifying? That is the goal. It is a high and lofty goal that Paul is setting before the church. And yet, as wonderful as it seems, why is it that we find it so challenging? Why is it that we don't always and only do those things that are helpful and edifying, seeking the advantage of others? Well, I know what your problem is. You're selfish. And it's my problem too. And that's, in many ways, the heart issue that Paul is addressing is that the heart, as we said this morning, the heart tends to want what the heart wants. The flesh tends to want what the flesh wants. And often our own sinfulness can be manifested in a way that we prefer what we prefer over that which we know might even edify. It's a matter of selfishness. In many ways, uh, this is what Paul is challenging the church to do, is to be discerning. He's not laying down a flat rule. In fact, uh, when we lay down flat rules that micromanage the conscience of other people, uh, we have entered into the arena of legalism. I grew up in a church culture, at least around me, a church culture uh, that forbid certain things. Alcohol was bad. Smoking was bad. Cussing was bad. That's clearly in the Bible. Uh, a lot of things that the Bible does not forbid were actually uh, deemed to be cultural sins. And some things that the Bible actually did forbid uh, were allowed. At least in my perception, things like racism, chauvinism, gluttony uh, were sort of sanitized sins. And we have a temptation within all of our hearts, confessing my sin here, not yours, uh, to either elevate some standards over others or push down some standards over others. And to use big words for a moment, liberalism always has the tendency to bring the word of God down to the level of man. But legalism is liberalism's twin sister. Liberalism wants to bring the word of God down. Legalism brings the word of man up, adding rules to the Bible that are not there. The 11th commandment, cultural sins that are now deemed to be unacceptable in the sight of man and pretended to be rules from God himself. And so we ought to avoid both extremes, never bringing the word of God down, never bringing the word of man up, adding to the Bible is just as much a sin as is taking things away. And so what Paul is pleading for here is a principle of discernment that is driven by selflessness rather than selfishness to this end that we might glorify God. And that takes us to our second thought, how we can glorify God in our decisions. The, the principles are stated <clears throat> at the beginning of our section in verses 23 through 24. Paul begins to then unpack it in an extended illustration that centers around food. 
And there's a side of us that wants to say, did you have to go there, Paul? Did you have to bring up barbecue? After all, couldn't it have been something else other than meat? I mean, surely he's meddling with the heart. But he makes an important point. He makes also a point that should be understood uh, very carefully uh, in its context. At this time in Corinth, Jews had a certain diet that they had adhered to based on Old Testament understanding of the law. Greeks, pagans, had a very, very different diet that not only included meat, they would often sacrifice meat to idols and then offer it at a meal. So imagine what happens then when you have Jews that have become Christians and are now free to eat meat. And you have Gentiles that have become Christians and are also free to eat meat but should not be engaging in idolatry. On the one hand, you have now this newfound freedom for the Jewish conscience to eat things that formerly they might not eat before. That comes up in the book of Acts. You know it from elsewhere in Scripture. But that which has been sacrificed to idols is clearly off limits. And so Paul gives an interesting illustration. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If you go shopping and you see there something that is offered in the market, you are free to buy it. You are free to eat it. Your conscience is free to enjoy, Paul says. And he quotes from the beginning of Psalm 24, a wonderful psalm, especially if you like meat. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now what is his point in quoting from this psalm, from Psalm 24.1, that God created all things. And all the things that God created, he created for good we might not understand the intended use or purpose of everything that God created, but God does. And when he rendered his own commentary, his own value judgment on what he created, he gave the right word, it is good. All that he made is good. We are free to use his creation properly, and not simply to use it, but even to enjoy it. I sense it when Paul says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and he's thinking about meat, he's probably smiling. He's recognizing that because God has not only made all things, he has given us freedom to enjoy all things properly and within a rightly understood context, uh, that you are truly free to buy those things in the marketplace. But he moves from the marketplace to the living room. Yet he, it's really like a manufactured example. He creates this hypothetical scenario in verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and notice the phrase that he uses here, and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Paul anticipates that the Christian has been invited over to dinner with a non-Christian. In Corinth, his illustration clearly develops into a non-Christian who may have even sacrificed the food being offered at the table to a god, one of the many Corinthian known gods. And on the one hand, Paul says, uh, you have an out. Technically speaking, you don't have to go. <clears throat> you know what's likely going to happen. Uh, this is a wonderful opportunity to stop and think about what wisdom is. Wisdom is not necessarily a list of rules to be found on a certain page in Scripture, but rather wisdom is applying the truth of God's Word to the bending circumstances of life. Should I go to this meal? Maybe you should. Maybe you shouldn't. Should I go to this party? Maybe you should. Maybe you shouldn't. 
Should I eat this that has been sacrificed to idols? You should not. That's not a matter of wisdom. That is a matter of principle that the Christian does not eat food sacrificed to idols. The unbeliever, as you sit down, uh, tells you, verse 28, this has been offered in sacrifice. Then Paul says very clearly, here's what you are to do. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now why? Who is Paul protecting here? On the one hand, yes, he is protecting the Christian. But he almost seems to put the accent not so much on the Christian's conscience, but the conscience of the unbeliever. In other words, if the unbeliever sees the Christian eating food that has been offered to an idol, it will become for him a stumbling block and a sin. And Paul says, for the sake not simply of your conscience, verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his, you should not do this. You should not cause your brother to stumble, if you can help it. And you should not cause even the non-Christian to perpetuate in his idolatry. So again, Paul says, if you know that you're going there and there's a possibility that this food is going to be sacrificed to pagan gods, uh, you don't have to go. But if he flaunts the idolatry, you may not eat it. And the point is, don't allow your freedom to enable his idolatry. Though God gives us freedom, he also gives us a sense of purpose and calling. There are times when, frankly, uh, you have to take a stand and politely say, boy, that really looks great. I love brisket. But if it's been sacrificed to idols, and you tell me that, I'm going to have to stick to the salad. Sounds pretty difficult, doesn't it? That's primarily what Paul is talking about here. Technically speaking, this text and texts like it have been applied to a lot of other subjects, including my original illustration, that of alcohol, which are not precisely what is in view in this text. But the principle you can still appreciate. Paul does not want Christians to engage in idolatry. Paul does not want Christians to give an implicit stamp of approval on even non-Christian idolatry. And more importantly, Paul wants the Christian to be able to eat with freedom and thankfulness. And if you know that what you're about to eat has been sacrificed to a pagan god, you cannot eat that with joy, freedom, and thankfulness. That is why we are free to decline. And that's exactly what he says we are to do. Verse 30, the whole section culminates, if I partake with thankfulness, Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? This point is on the one hand, the Christian might be able to do certain things with a measure of freedom, but if doing these things causes another to sin or himself to knowingly sin, then he ought not to do it. Is meat in and of itself capable of being sinful? The answer is no. Are the things that God has made in and of themselves sinful? The answer is no, but it is possible at times that they can be used sinfully, and that's what Paul is saying that we are to abstain from. But what is the real goal that Paul has here? In many ways, this is all an illustration of the goal that he is striving to get at, and that goal is reached in verses 31 through 11.1. I'm going to take and treat them together. Calvin was in something of a mood when he wrote his commentary on this particular text because he caused the verse or chapter division between chapter 10 and 11 absurd. He sounds almost 
frustrated about it, but I actually appreciate where he's coming from. 11.1 really is the end of chapter 10. <clears throat> so I'm going to read them together and then make comment. So whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And then he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. How does the Christian navigate through these difficult waters, matters of conscience, discerning not simply what is right from what is wrong, but what is good from what is best? Well, in a certain sense, it's what we have embodied in our first shorter catechism question and answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you played it out in his illustration, the chief end of eating is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It's hard to, on the one hand, hold up this principle knowing how often I fail to do it and you do too. But what Paul is saying is that in everything we do, we should have one singular motivation to do everything for the glory of God. And yet, how many times this day or this week have we done many things that were clearly not for the glory of God? Even as it regards to food, that's a pretty holy way of thinking about eating and drinking. But Paul's point is really not about eating and drinking. The whole point of the text is really being a servant to others. That's where he is going with this. He's not trying to micromanage your diet be thankful for that. But he is after a heart that is tuned to the glory of God. And he's also particularly interested in not setting stumbling blocks from in front of people that would hinder them from coming to the faith. So verse 32, when he says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God, I do not believe what he is saying by that is that therefore you can never, ever, ever eat meat again. It has become wrong. What he is saying is that you should be gladly willing to forfeit that liberty for the sake of not causing your friend to struggle. And notice the categories that he uses, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church. He recognized that there are certain stumbling blocks capable of being set before the Jews. There are different stumbling blocks capable of being set before the Greeks. And finally, uh, there were stumbling blocks even for those who were new and in the church things that could cause them to stumble, and that we ought to strive to not do those things. What is Paul asking of us? To say it differently. What is he really asking of the church? He's asking them, he's asking us to take up the cross. Even in our eating. Which seems so contrary to the way we think about eating. Because after all, food is much more than fuel. It's a friend. It's therapy. It's comfort. It's what many of us are tempted to live for. And we certainly, in many ways, live by it. And yet in that very context, Paul says again, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. What is Paul's grand goal? Say it like this. Should I allow food to become a stumbling block to someone coming to the faith? The answer is no. Should I allow food to become a stumbling block to someone who is new in the faith and yet struggles to understand where those boundaries are for themselves? 
The answer is no. Should I allow the exercise of my Christian liberty to hinder other people from coming to Christ? That's really what he's after. And the answer is no. We don't flaunt our liberty in other people's faces. But we also don't use our liberty as an occasion to cause people to stumble, which is really what the word means when that language is used in Scripture, causing someone to stumble. It means to hinder them spiritually or to cause them to sin. And that's what we were being forbidden from doing. But I want to put it positively here. And I'm very thankful for 11.1. If 11.1 weren't here, I'd be in trouble. You might be too. For after all, if you didn't have 11.1, you would not have a mention of Jesus' name in this section. If you didn't have 11.1, you would not understand what Paul is really striving after. In many ways, uh, I've mentioned the cross already, but Paul is calling the church to discipleship. When he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, I wonder, does it bother you or seem odd that he says, be imitators of me? Is Paul holding himself up as an example? Has Paul become the thing? Well, even in his language, that's clearly not the case. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But why does he say be imitators of me at all? Because Paul, in many ways, has learned what it means to take up his cross, to deny himself, and to follow after Christ. And the word that we often refer to as discipleship, the Bible uh, actually has different ways of illustrating that, different ways of applying that. And one of those ways is through the language of mimicry. Mimicry was a very popular idea in the first century. Technically, it is a term that comes from the stage. When a young actor or an understudy would follow around a more advanced actor, learning the way that they walk, learning the way that they talk, learning to imitate their performances. You can see how that term grows into the subject of discipleship. How did carpenters learn to be carpenters in the first century? There were no carpenter schools. How did bakers learn to be bakers in the first century? There were no baker schools. How did pastors learn to be pastors? You begin to get the point. Uh, The paradigm was mimicry. A younger understudy would watch an older person do it, male or female, and they would imitate the words, the walk, the way of someone who was able to do that craft even better than they were. That's what Paul is saying here, is that the Christian life in many ways is one of imitating Christ. When you boil it all down, the Christian life in many ways is one of imitating Christ while being in union with Christ. And how does the Christian best imitate Christ? It's by taking up the cross. If the goal of the Father is to conform sons and daughters to the image of Christ, what tool does he most regularly use? It's the cross of Christ. But what is it ultimately that Paul wants us to do? It's not simply to imitate Christ, but to remember, even through this language, that for our sakes, Jesus, beloved, did everything that I just asked you to do. He forewent his liberty and set aside all of his rights, all of his privileges. In the language of Philippians 2, he did not consider equality of God a thing to be grasped, but for our sakes set aside so many of his rights. Not only did he set aside creaturely comforts and rights, what did he do? He esteemed us as so much more important than himself that he laid down his life. 
You could almost take the language that Paul here has applied to the Christian and walk it back thinking about how Jesus accomplished those very same things for us, trying uh, not simply to be a man pleaser, but ultimately seeking the advantage of others that many might actually be saved. And we are saved, beloved, not by imitating Christ. We're saved by placing our faith in Christ. But as we've placed our faith in Christ, we are called to imitate Christ, to mimic him. Paul holds up himself as an example, only and insofar as he points the church to Christ. That is his goal. And that is Paul's goal for the church as well that we reflect the one who made the great sacrifice for us and that we'd even do it, I know this sounds crazy, in the context of very simple, daily, mundane things like eating. But when you think about it like this, if you can take up your cross and follow Christ at the dinner table, where can't you take up your cross and follow Christ? In many ways, uh, the most basic thing that we do every day is what? is eat. And if we can learn to bear the cross there for the sake of Christ, that splashes over into everything else we do with the rest of our life. What is Paul's great goal here for the church? That many might be saved. What is the great goal then of the Christian? That whether we eat or drink or whatever we do to do all things for the glory of God. This is your chief end that you would glorify and enjoy God, beloved, in everything that you do, even in your eating. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of food, for what would this day and the next be without it? We thank you that we're able to say with Paul, in the language of Psalm 24.1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And yet we recognize, Lord, that in our enjoying, there is the temptation to indulge or to overindulge. That in our liberty, there is the opportunity, O Lord, even to tear down and destroy our brothers and sisters who might stumble over some of the very same things that we are free to eat or to drink. And so we ask, O Lord, that you'd give us a measure of wisdom and discernment Help us to distinguish, O Lord, not simply that which is right from that which is wrong. Help us to recognize that which is good and to compare it with that which is best and to strive after the best things. And we do pray, Lord, that you help us on the one hand to not use our liberty as an occasion to tear down others. And at the same time, O Lord, help us to not have our consciences micromanaged by uh, those who would impose their views upon us. But rather, O Lord, might we be guided by that one sure rule, which is the word of God, So it help us to never bring the word of God down or to lift the word of man up, but rather, Lord, help us be willing to lay down our lives sacrificially on behalf of others and chiefly on behalf of the one who laid down his life perfectly for us. So might the word of Christ rule in our hearts and might we be at peace with one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.